Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the breakthrough success coach and your powerful presence mentor. Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most. Most. I'm your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the exponential success coach and the founder and president of Dynamic Leader Inc. You know, uh, my guest today, from a dueling piano bar pianist to a speaker who needed surgery on his vocal cords, Greg Offner is he's the founder and CEO of Global Performance Institute. And we'll be talking about work culture, which is uh, something that's a pet interest of mine. Um, and we'll also be talking about something that he calls the tip jar culture. So I'm interested in diving into all of that. And with, with that, Greg, welcome to One Sharp Sword. Well, hey, thank you very much for having me, Dr. Wayne. Yes. So tell me, um, you know, I my my thing that I'm working on is called a culture of caring. And that's the kind of thing that I'm bringing forth. And you're doing this in a different way. You're coming at it. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, like, I'm curious because I want to know all about where you started and i want to know about uh the things i mentioned in the intro the dueling piano bar which means you're super talented um <laughs> well that my mom would agree with you yes that's true that's awesome <laughs> so that's i mean it's amazing um just that i like i could interview you just on that like how do you have all those in your head and um and even if you have to call them up on an ipad how do you just sort of launch into that and um and I mean, then I'll tell you, so I, I wish that I had stock numbers in my head. I wish, you know, there are people who can sit there for hours and talk stats about sports and who went to what college and this thing and that thing. And my brain has a knack for the patterns and lyrics that uh, go along with songs. Um, and that's what's funny is that it doesn't mean that I know the names of all the songs or if you gave me a band that I can rattle off their discography or even name all the people in it. But if we're sitting out at a restaurant or a coffee shop talking, I cannot help but my brain has like a second microphone that's listening to whatever music is going on around us. And that's something that has been a part of me ever since I was was younger. So that helps me when it comes to playing all of these songs, but it's not really everything. It just because you know a lot of songs doesn't allow you to do it. Before iPads, there were books that piano players would take with them everywhere, um, to gigs anyway, and, and those had all of our, our chord charts. And, and really, that's what I think most piano players do when they're starting out, is they they use chord charts. And now at this point in my career, there are probably a few hundred songs that I've just got memorized or I just understand, okay, I start in the key of D and then I know where the changes, meaning where the different chords go in that song. Um, but for others, I'll just pull up the chords on, I use a service called ultimate guitar. And then when I get a song request for something, I don't know very often what I can do is pop in an earbud and pull up the song on YouTube or Spotify and pull up the corresponding chart. And once I 
once I kind of understand the rhythm and sort of the feel of the song, I can generally play almost any song like that. Amazing. Um, and it all started along? in college. Like, is it is it playing in your ear and you play along or is it like, yeah, oh, so I got kind the song, you know, now I know where I'm headed. Uh, it depends on how complex the song is and how much pressure I feel like I'm under. Like, if there's a really big audience, I'll probably play along with the song just in case there's a bridge that I maybe hadn't accounted for three verses into the song or something. Sure. Um, I did that on a live broadcast about two or three months ago where one of the participants, and we were doing this for um, a group of children who are in hospital. So I really didn't want to disappoint them. And one of the, one of the participants requested a song that I just didn't know. Uh, and so I said, give me a second, threw in the earbud, pulled it up. And within, you know, 60 seconds was, was playing it. Uh, and afterwards the organizer said to me, how the hell did you do that? And I said, you know, that's like the magic of technology before at a piano bar, if that happened, I would have had to wait for my next break and yeah. go off stage and sort of listen to it a couple times through and try to figure it out and then come back out. But these, you know, wireless earbuds, it's great. Uh, yeah, the phone can be all the way over there. That's amazing. That is amazing. Um, my son, when he was very, very little, we taught him about various instruments. And when he was three and we had him at a restaurant and he was he stopped eating and he goes, is that an oboe? And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and the rest of us were like, well, wow. Well, we yeah, that is an oboe. <laughs> like, yeah, he oh just picked gosh. it out of nowhere, huh? <laughs> so I understand the, you're always listening because that's the way he operates. He's always, he's always hearing the music. Mm -hmm. um he hasn't turned it into that he's uh he's got his master's in music composition um and he's doing some other things in um in vfx right now but uh but that's amazing for you that like you can hear it you assimilate it and you put it out and i'm gonna assume that that's um uh, that that while it's not an exact skill that is generalizable you have in fact, generalized it to some of the other areas in your life that you are able to say, okay, there's a rhythm, there's a cadence, there's a, a feeling that we evoke and that we bring that maybe to the workplace. Yes. So I do believe that work is a performance. And I think that it's a different type of stage. I've spent my life on a real stage, so to speak, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, performing. But I think that what we do at work every day is, is also performing. And I don't, I always get worried that people are going to say, well, Greg, that may, do you mean it's fake? Uh, no, I don't mean that performing is fake. I think you're performing a task. And if we think about it more like a performance, there are some lessons that we can then draw from the world of arts and entertainment that can make work a little bit more fun. Um, and I think that as long as you are taking the impact of what you do seriously, having fun is, is actually encouraged. It, it's going to make you more effective. Let's talk about being a speaker for, for a second, because this okay. is dear to, to my heart as a speaker also. 
some of the biggest work that I've had to do, and I've done it over the past couple of years, especially, is to peel away what it means to actually be authentic on stage. And so when you're talking about, um, oh, performance, does that mean it's fake? It's like, well, no, actually, sometimes performance means it's all the more real, like you are there. And um, my work specifically was to let go of being an orator because, right, because nobody relates to that. And so really, how do you be in your work? How do you, you know, the kind of speaking that you do, you serve to inspire by being real on stage, not by being some speaker that you're quote unquote supposed to be. Um, talk a little bit about that. And then let's come back to the work, work culture thing. Well, the, the most frequent question I get asked is whether or not I still get or get uh, nervous, you know, when I go, when I go on stage mm. and I think nervousness is a feature of, um, of self-focus. I was looking for a better word. Yes. I'm sure there is one. Yeah. I think that I think that that's a feature of worrying too much about me. And the truth is I'm not so important. I may be the person on stage and I may have the microphone, but the important people are out in the audience. The more that I worry about them, the less nervous I am. So that that's my little secret, right? I mean, whether it's at a piano bar or in a keynote, 99% of the audience wants me to do well because that means the experience goes well for them. Yeah. Yeah. So my focus then needs to be what do they need from me in order for this experience to go well? And as long as I'm continually focused on checking in, um, maybe not in the form of like asking them, hey, what do you need from me? Although certainly that's an option, but just in reading the crowd and being aware situationally of what's going on, knowing the focus of the event or, you know, whatever, there are so many factors. Um, as long as I'm focused on those, I don't have time to worry about me. Mm. I am uh, writing something down that I want to repeat back because this is where I like to underscore in, in interviewing my guests. I like to underscore some of the gems that come out. And I believe that this is a leadership gem. Right. The whole idea of being nervous on stage is about self-focus versus what's the gift of the message, right? It's like what the message is bigger than I am. So what's the gift of the message? The gem that I want to underscore here is this sentence that you just said. And I believe that if every leader said this out loud to themselves in the morning before they headed off to work, it would be amazing. What do they need from me to make sure the performance goes well? Uh, this performance, like, what do they need from me to make sure that I'm at my best for them to make sure that they're at their best? That is a leadership statement. And I think that our leaders miss that. What do they need from me? How can I show up at my very best? And I think as, as speakers, Awesome. We need to be asking ourselves that. What do they need from me in order to actually get the message and elevate where they are? Um, as a performer, it's like you've got to be in a space of are you having enough fun that you can 
invite them to have fun with you. Mm-hmm. Right. That's part of it. Um, and then, you know, let's segue back to the work culture. Like, what do they need from any of us? Like as a, as, as a team member, what's needed from me to make sure that I'm in my best space for this performance of this task of, you know, of running a team as a leader, same thing. Yeah. And I'll, 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 I think that's a beautiful tee up Wayne, because what team members need most from their leaders is the removal of unnecessary friction. When I, I went to military school uh, and it was a high school, it wasn't like West Point or anything. I went to a military high school and we had rank, you know, so in the military, you get rank, you corporal or a sergeant or a lieutenant or, you know, whatever. And I remember I was so eager to get rank because of what that said about me. I saw it as an award. I saw it as, as validation that I was worth more than those plebes without rank, those average so-and-sos. And while the school was trying to teach me this lesson then, I didn't learn it, really learn it, till much later. And the lesson is this. Rank is not a reward. It's a tool. And so when you become a manager or a vice president, yeah, go celebrate with your loved ones. But understand that's not a reward or some endorsement of who you are as a person. That is a tool that you have been given. And the way that you best utilize that tool, that authority, is like a lever. Yeah, you know how with a lever you can move very heavy things? That position of authority is a lever for you to move the obstacles that the people you serve, your team members, don't have the ability to move. And the leaders, I think, who go to work and ask themselves that question, what does my team need from me? And then respond by using the authority they've been giving to help get it done. Those are the leaders that can create these tip jar cultures. I love everything about that. I love everything about that. This is, um, again, rank for you was validation, but it's, it's really rank is not a reward. It's a tool of authority. Um, and it's the authority to use the leverage that you've been granted, which I think is amazing. Um, I just, I'm calling on, uh, a, a previous guest I had on who talks about the leverage of trust, you know, and do you believe the first lever of that he talks about as a tool is, do you believe I have your best interest at heart? What an amazing kind of overlay here to be able to say, you know what? I show up as the leader with your best interest at heart. And now what can I do to remove the friction in your life so that we can all move toward this goal. And I think that that sometimes gets lost too, is that we're all working towards a unified goal. Are we? I I question that. I think that. Right. It's up to the leader to, to define what that is. Yeah. I, I think that that is something that only the most forward thinking companies are rallying around. I think a lot of people, uh, there's a statistic I'll misquote, but it, the 
level of confidence that the average worker has that their senior leaders have their best interest at heart is very, very low. True. And we see True. that play out in the way decisions are made at work. You know, one of the companies that I admire is a company called Nintendo that I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with. And I think one of the most sensational stories that, that kind of goes underreported was um, back when the Nintendo Switch was first introduced. Um, it was a flop. It was a flop. And a lot of the analysts were calling uh, for layoffs at the company because they were missing numbers. And the chairman of the board came out very vocally and said, I will not lay off any employees because I don't believe that my software developers and my engineers and all of the other employees at Nintendo can do their best work when they're worried about the security of their job. And so instead, the chairman and several other members of the senior leadership team took significant, I mean, meaningful cuts in pay so that layoffs didn't have to take place. Now, that that's the type of leadership that we should be seeing much more of, especially given the disparity of CEO pay to the average worker pay. I mean, if anybody can afford it, it's today's CEOs. And yet, when we go back through the last 12 or 18 months, you know, news reports, we constantly see the folks at the bottom are the ones getting pushed out and sacrificed for the greater good of the organization. And I think that that's backwards thinking. As you just said, when everyone's winning together, not only are the incentives to perform higher, but the rewards are higher because we really are unified around a common goal. And that's just like, performers in an orchestra, mm -hmm. in a choir, or at a piano bar. You know, it's called dueling pianos. And so at the end of the night, somebody's going to come up and go, all right, hey, Greg, who won the duel? Was it you? Was it that guy? And I mean, it, it's not really like that. The duel, if anything, is between all of us and, and boredom. That's great. Uh, you know, and and right. and so only when we work together are we able to create an experience that elevates the status of everybody in that room. You're not just you're not just a, a patron of the bar. You're a member of our choir, our somewhat intoxicated choir. But nonetheless, we are all having fun together. And yeah. I think that's what makes that culture, that tip jar culture, so special. Why I want organizations to strive to emulate some of the principles found within the piano bar that create that engagement, that engaging atmosphere is because at the end of the night, I think the winner is everyone who walks out of that room with a smile on their face. And I'd love to be able to say about organizations that at the end of the day, the winner is everyone who is affiliated with this company, because as the organization wins, so do the people that they serve both internally and externally. I mean, the, the company's goal, I don't mean to go off on a tangent here, but no, this is perfect. I'm like, I, you know, I'm sitting here nodding my head and uh, again, just that was masterful to bring this back to, we've gone from dueling pianos to 
bringing a culture together. What are we doing? We're working together to elevate the experience of everyone. Great. This is mm-hmm. like, that's, that's a quote that will show up in the show notes because it's, that's- it's exactly what we're after, right? Like, can we say, no, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm working to stab my coworker in the back so I could be seen. You know, it's like, no, that's a, that's not the culture we want to build. Right. And yet it's rewarded. And yet, you know, too often that's rewarded. So. Well, one of the biggest drivers of disengagement are misaligned incentives. When an organization pits your success against my success, they create a toxic work environment. And ultimately that leads to disengagement because the, the big, the big misunderstanding that I see out there among the leaders I work with is that their goal is to create more engagement. And you can't, just like you can't motivate someone, you can only create the environment in which they feel motivated. You can't create engagement. You can only create an experience that is more engaging. And so engagement or disengagement are decisions based on the quality of the experience offered by the employer. And ostensibly, every employee starts out as engaged. They have to be by definition because they went through an interview process. And you cannot be disengaged in an interview process or else you don't get the job. I mean, maybe there's some bad hiring managers out there, but I'm just saying generally you have to be. So somewhere along the line, the employee made the decision to disengage. And it's there's two ways to look at that. We could say, well, what are the factors that lead them to disengage? And like I just said, you know, misaligned incentives are one. But we could also say, well, what are the factors that lead them to engage? And that's what I talk about in my keynote. I talk about these factors, these principles that we find at the piano bar. They're parts of the experience that we've intentionally included because they generate substantial engagement. Let's dive into that a little bit. If you're willing to, let's yeah, talk sure. about your keynote because this is, the keynote is the tip jar culture. Is that right? That's right. That's awesome. It's also the name of your book. That's right. That'll be coming out in early 2024. How exciting is that? That's awesome. Yeah. Um, very, you know, congratulations. Cause this is, you know, you, you've got so many new things in your own life going on that, that, uh, this is so great. It's yeah. So great. Yeah. My wife will be very happy when it's over though. I will tell you it's, it's <laughs> the writing, this book. the writing part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, Talk right, so about let's dive into just one. Bit. So we don't we don't we don't really have time to go through all three, but let's dive into one that I think is is probably at the forefront of everybody's mind, uh, the tip jar itself. So what does the tip jar have to do with engagement? It's a really interesting question because I used to think that it was the money that went in it. I used to think that that was it. Um, what I've learned is it's actually the jar itself, the presence of a tip jar that creates engagement. It's not so much what goes in it, but just the fact that it's there, that there is a visible representation that says, hey, for discretionary incentive, you're going to get extraordinary effort. And that's what patrons see as they put more money in the tip bowl, in the tip jar, whether it's just putting it in there saying, hey, job well done, or whether it's accompanying a request slip as they, as they request songs, they see we go above and beyond. 
that we actually make an effort to, like we started off talking about at the top of the show, I'll learn a song I've never played before in a public. I mean, that could go really badly for me as a performer, but I'm willing to do that because you've put some discretionary incentive out there. You've put that on the line. Now, there are other factors that go into me being willing to do that, like creating a culture of psychological safety. We're not going to go into that. That's the first principle of the piano bar, which is shared values. But Mm. I think what's so fascinating about that tip jar is that it's missing in a lot of organizations. Outside of sales or some executive positions where bonuses are offered, there is little to no opportunity to do anything for additional income other than work more hours, other than than a Mm. trade time for money. And unless you've got some magic formula for maintaining youth forever, we are all starting to realize, especially on the heels of the pandemic, that time is literally our most valuable commodity. And as we get older, it becomes more and more valuable because we've got less and less of it. So we're less willing to just trade that extra hour for another couple of bucks. What we want to do is make that hour more valuable, not just for us, but for the employer. Mm -hmm. We want to trade impact, not time, for income. And organizations that create the vehicle for people to do this thrive. Yet so many don't. And and it really... uh, it, it just blows my mind. I'm, I'm, I have a hard time wrapping my head around why more organizations don't. Like, take for example, there's a company out there called Spar Marketing. Okay. I think they're, I think they're actually based in California. I'd have to double check. I'm not, I'm not 100 percent on that. But so Spar is a fascinating company, and one of the services that they offer is going into drugstores and and resetting the shelves you know so like let's say pepsid comes out with a new and improved pepsid anti uh, uh, reflux thing right very technical term so they need they need the products reshuffled and reset to get the consumer to buy what it is that they wanted to buy right sure well so the drugstores will will hire this company spar to send in what they call mer- who they call merchandisers so they send these merchandisers in um to reset the shelves now, the thing about these, gro- these, these drugstores is that they're relatively comfortable environments, right? They got a candy aisle. They got a soda aisle. It's air conditioned in the, in the summer, you know, heated in the winter. Like, this is a nice place to be. So how Spar needed to figure out how to incentivize their merchandisers to get this job done quickly because the drugstores, they want you in and out. Like, get this, get this done and get out of there, right? So here's what they came up with. They assigned a time and a dollar value for each job. So let's say you're coming in here to Philadelphia to the to the Walgreens, to, you know, right down the road. And uh, I realized I may have said Eckerd just a moment ago. And Eckerd Drugstore hasn't existed since like 2002. But anyway, shows you better how than I saying am. it's better than saying Rexall, right? Fair, <laughs> fair. Wait, isn't Rexall Canadian? Eh? Yeah. Uh, I I grew up in Southern California, and there was Rexall Drugs. Back then, so yeah. So there's, so there's. I mean, I was just in Canada, that's why I know this. Uh, there's Rex Hall is is still a drugstore in Canada. It is. So eh? awesome. yeah. Okay. So for your Canadian listeners, you know, we got them. We hooked them now. So whether that's they're awesome. a Rexall or a Walgreens, or, it doesn't matter where they're at, Wayne. They're or doing the thing, okay, right? Go ahead. Yes. So so they said, okay, if you're here in Philadelphia at this drugstore, and you got to do this, you know, shelf reset, we estimate it's going to take two hours, uh, and that is worth three hundred dollars, right? 
So the thing is, if I get it done in one hour, I still get the $300. So now I'm incentivized to move faster, but they put a check in. They put a check, like a check and balance in the process. There's a diagram of what it's supposed to look like. And the store manager has that diagram and the store manager has to sign off that says, I did it right for me to get paid. And the store manager is paid differently than I am, right? So they're incentivized for me to get it right. And I'm incentivized to get out of there. So that's a pretty nice check and balance, right? The store manager doesn't get paid more if it takes me longer. So it's not like they're saying, oh, do this thing here. And it's a stupid little change that they're, no, our interests are aligned, but we're able to check and balance each other. So what if more organizations implemented some sort of approach like SPAR? I think that that would be the tip jar solution employees are looking for. It's a great example. Nintendo, SPAR, they're great examples. Um, you know, one of my first jobs was doing a, it was task-based and the incentive was all the people around me were slow down, easy money, right? You don't have to do it all at once. Just slow down. For me, it was like, let's just get it done. Then it's done. And, um, and, and there was no kind of tip jar culture thinking at all it was here's a quota it needs to be done by the end of the day versus here's the task how many can you do like mm. <laughs> right so yeah. so i love that i love the idea and i've been in in uh years ago i started in records so records remember those records oh yeah oh so, so there's always the the biggest you know kind of uh a display about what's new and who's the new band and all that stuff that was that was a few decades ago you are listening to one sharp sword cutting through to what matters most with your host dr wayne pernell you know you are bigger than the life you are leading it really is time to attend to that thing you've wanted to do or have but you've been putting off It's time to step into that dream you've parked for someday. It's time to claim true well-being, both personally and professionally, without giving up the success that got you here. It's time to check out Dr. Purnell's signature small group retreat, the Exponential Success Summit. Explore ExponentialSuccessSummit.com. Seats are extremely limited as this is a very special small group event www.exponentialsuccesssummit.com. I'm loving this. The uh, the reason I'm loving this is that you talked about values, and um, I'm going to share with you. Uh, like, I approach things slightly differently than you, and you approach things differently than I do, which is which is awesome, and it's why I wanted you here. Um, when I work with organizations, I start with values, a values assessment of values, like, where are you? And from there, build the vision. And 
demonstrate. Please show me how you're living into your vision. So it's values, vision, and then vitality. So I, I make it cute with three Vs, values, vision, vitality. And vitality is really what's the energy that you're bringing as a leader? What's the energy that you're expecting? How are you showing up, right? So it sounds like you have a very similar approach, except it's except you you come in sort of different than I do. and and your concepts are similar. And I'm just I love this where you go, okay, yeah, and and this is where I want you to say, yeah, and this is how I come in. So I've shared with you how I come in. You talk about shared values. How do you assure that? values are even assessed how do you assure that values are even discussed so that they can be identified as shared values well i think that the challenge is um the values of an organization generally aren't valuable to the employee um Organizations spend a lot of time writing corporate poetry that goes up on the walls or in shareholders' reports about, you know, we believe in the integral worth of all of our people. And we, you know, some of these companies have 31 values. I'm not joking. No. And that's where I say prove it. Right. And, and, and it, it almost seems when we look at organizations in the news that, that it's not so much their values, they're what we wish we valued. If we didn't value money so damn much, because all the decisions really seem to come down to what's best for the bottom line. And, and well, the values are here. And what organiz- what what employees want to see within the organization are not just uh, values that are a little bit more than the company's bottom line, but they're values that they can act upon because companies spend a lot of time training employees how to do the job. And if they only spent a little more time training employees how to fit into the organization, that whole doing the job part would take care of itself. Cause I mean, we come to work every day. You learn the job by doing in most cases. I mean, unless you're talking about, you know, brain surgery or uh, getting rockets to the moon, a lot of people are learning and refining on the job. So well, all cu- this culture is changing, like uh, externally of the company, culture is changing all the time. So the response to the requests, the needs, et cetera, that's changing, which means, of course, you're learning on the job, which is which is awesome. And this is, uh, I'm actually underscoring what you're saying, right? That it's, yeah. you have to learn on the job. And so the values of the organization, like, is everything I'm doing filtered through this value? Right? Yeah. Yeah, it, there needs to be all right. So you you asked to, you're asking about value. So we'll talk about the first principle. Uh, I call it on stage. I call it opting in, but that's really what values are. At the piano bar, we need you to opt into the experience. We need you to understand quickly how to fit in and participate. Otherwise, the experience all kind of falls to pot. And it's just that way with business too. You need an employee who joins the organization to very quickly and eagerly fit in and start participating. Otherwise they're probably not succeeding at the role and they may not be long for your company. So how do we do that? Well, at the piano bar, we have three simple values that we share in a rather funny way with our audience. I call it the spiel. And like we talked about just moments ago, the organization communicates it via a value statement. But but here's here's the difference. At the piano bar, those that spiel is actionable. 
So to the people listening to it, it's valuable. It literally tells you how to fit in and what to do. All right. So our values are take a sip, fill out a request slip, leave a tip. You walk into any piano bar around the world, you do those three things, you're going to fit in. You're going to have a blast. Take a sip. We joke and we say that it's not safe to sing on a unlubricated throat, you know, but the truth is it's more about community. You know, a cocktail may loosen you up. A soda gives you something to hold in your hand while you're talking. Either way, you're enjoying uh, that communal aspect of the bar. The second element, fill out a request slip, what's an all audience participation show. And we need your request. We joke and we say, if you don't start making requests, we're going to play the entire Bette Midler song catalog cover to cover. And nobody <laughs> wants that. So, you know, we have a little bit of fun with it. But the truth is, when folks participate, when they're sharing their ideas about what should happen next in the performance, they are more connected to the performance itself. They almost feel, because they do, have a hand in creating it. And so there's a sense of ownership and a sense of pride. And then lastly, leaving a tip is, as we talked about, discretionary incentive for discretionary effort. Those three elements help someone fit in at a piano bar. And it's only when we can fit in that psychological safety I mentioned earlier that we really feel safe trying to stand out. And the same is at work. When we understand, really understand how to fit in, only then do we start to feel safe and we'll try to stand out. But as long as those value statements have 31, you know, air quotes, essential values that nobody, nobody actually knows, people have no idea how to really fit in. Yeah. Yeah. That's the problem organizations are confronted with. So they have a lot of people who are showing up, clocking in, and then mentally checking out because it doesn't feel safe to stand out because they're not even sure how to fit in. Do I fit in with this group who seem to be the brown nosers and the, you know, the, the butt kissers of, of the higher ups? Do I fit in with this group who are just the steady Eddie show up at eight, leave at five, don't do too much, you know? And there's this other group over here who are basically waging a silent coup, sabotaging the office copier every chance they get. Like, who do I fit in with? What is the culture? This is this- high school dynamics all over again, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> When they wrote that book, all I need to know about life I learned in kindergarten. I, I think they were onto something, you know. Sure. There's a reason that's a bestseller. I mean, it, it just sounds like you know, there's there's the in group, and then there's the out group. And you know, one of my friends is um, he's an amazing speaker. He's a green beret, and he talks about um, in tribe, out tribe, and the interlopers. Hmm. And the interlopers are are being assessed. If you're not one of us, then you're out tribe. If you are one of us, well, we already know you. And if you're an interloper, we're going to figure out where you belong and we're going to teach, keep you at arm's distance. Now, let me, let me interrupt you real quick, because this is something I'm passionate about. See that we talked earlier about stage fright just briefly. Yeah. And focusing on worrying about me versus worrying about the audience. I think that description right, of in-group, out-group, or I think that's very self-focused. It's, it's, it's worrying about me. So it's, maybe it's worrying about the organization, let's say, instead of ascribing that to one individual. I've learned there are three archetypes that you'll find in any audience. So when I look out at the audience at a piano bar, there are three big buckets of people out there. I've got keepers, 
Those are my, my regulars. They're showing up all the time. They know the drill. I know I can count on them. They may not want to get called up to the piano and sort of singled out and made a big show of. They don't may not want all the attention, right? But they love to be part of this experience. The second group are what I call my leapers. Those are the bachelor, bachelorette parties, birthday parties, corporate parties. They're folks that are they're here for a good time, but probably not a long time. They're probably not starting the night and ending the night with us. We are a stop or a step on their destination. Then the third group are what I call sleepers. They're kind of challenging at the piano bar because I'm not really sure what their deal is. They kind of maybe are sitting back with their arms folded, kind of poker face, not giving me a whole lot. I'm not sure if they're pissed off or if they're really just like into the tune and they're in their own headspace. And and so they're the ones that I really have to connect with. And figure out, okay, what can I do to make this experience worthwhile to get you to engage? And in many cases, um, it's going out into the audience during a break and saying, hey, my name's Greg. I'm one of the piano players. I saw you out here. Have you made a request yet? You know, what can we do to make this night amazing for you? And I learn a bit about them, right? So this has nothing to do with me and everything to do with the audience. And now let's bring that into the organization. You got your keepers. Right? Those are traditionally what you think of as your rock stars, your top performers. But there's also a subset at work, your rock steadies. Those are the people who don't want the attention. They don't want the, prom- the promotion. They just want to come in and do the work because they love the organization, the people they do it with. They love the mission. You've got your leapers. And this is a cohort that I think gets maligned. And when we talk about in-group and out-group, these can seem like an out-group. But they're there for a purpose. It's not an accident that they're at work. The problem is they don't want this to be their final destination. They've got their sights set somewhere else. Maybe they're at a big, flashy corporate uh, job so that they can work a couple years in a lower level management job there and go take a senior level leadership job at some boutique firm, right? Or maybe they're at the boutique firm trying to get experience because they want to get into a big, flashy corporate job. Whatever it is as a leader, We've got to understand what they need from me to get what they want out of this experience. And as long as your audience, and let's just translate your employees, as long as they believe you are willing to do what it takes to get them what they need from this experience, they will engage regularly, reliably, and effectively. Leapers are some of the most effective employees because they got something to prove. They got somewhere to be. They want to go to that next destination. And they know that you can help them get there. But if they believe you're going to try to stop them and force them to be a keeper, force them to stay. Like if at the piano bar, I didn't play the request slips that a bachelor party had because I thought, well, they're spending money. Maybe if I get them to stay till the end of the night, they'll spend a lot more and they'll give me more of their tips. The opposite happens. They start to get pissed off and they leave earlier. And just like at the piano bar, that last group, the sleepers, these are what you'd probably call your disengaged employees. And instead of ignoring them and and kind of like Milton in the movie Office Space, just hoping they go away, you know, fixing the glitch and hoping they get the message. If we go out and engage with them in an authentic way, not a conversation of, hey, what's up with your performance? How, you know, but ask, hey, What is it that lights you up about the work you do here? Good for you. Yeah. Once we start to understand that, then we can engage them and they will become a leaper 
or a keeper. Love this. Love this. As I said, we come at this slightly differently. The language is slightly different. Um, The intent and the outcome is identical. It is how do we engage uh, leaders so that they really get that it's up to them as a leader to, as you say, utilize the tool of leverage and going up and and actually engaging with those that look disengaged. They might not be. That might just be a style. They look disengaged. No, they're totally into it in their own way. But you won't know until you ask. If you sit there in judgment of them, all you do is create this wedge between you and them instead of really getting to know who they are and what they value. Mm-hmm. So there's no way of building the bridge of shared values if you're going to judge them. Um, and it is up to each leader uh, to, to find out. Now, the other piece is, and, and this is where you get audience participation as a, as a piano bar host, I believe that it's that each of us is a leader. Right. So we are leading each other. So, right. Being a member of an audience at a piano bar, I'm going to be like, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm be one of the, I'm going to be one of the first cheerleaders, even if I'm a leaper. I'm, it's like, this is a stop. I want to feel my best. I want to, I want the people around me to feel my best. Like I want, I want to be that beacon of light for other people. And so even if I'm here for a short time and a good time, I want it to be a good time and I'm not going to be falsely cheerleading. Um, but that's where, you know, as, as just as the host of this podcast, I want each of our audience members to think, what can you do as a leader to lift the people around you? Yeah. At the piano bar, of course, it's nice to have a bucket full of tips right at the end of the night, of course. But I would argue that a truly successful night at a piano bar could be measured by having someone outside the door asking all of the patrons one question as they walked away. Based on your experience tonight, would you be interested in coming back to this or going to another piano bar in the future? Nice. And similarly, as a keynote speaker, you know, my job is is to, yes, of course, serve the audience but also do such a good job that the meeting planner goes, of course, we would have another keynote speaker next year. Maybe not me, but of course, we want another speaker. This added value to the experience. And so the question that employees employees should be thinking is, is the performance I'm giving today making it easier for the people I work with to give their performance. Because ultimately, the employee and employer are both kind of asking the same question at the end of the day. Do I want this experience again? Mm. Right? Every boss is thinking, oh, do I want Greg to come back tomorrow? Do I hope he sort of ghosts me? It wouldn't be that bad if he just disappeared, if that was a bad performance, right? And the employee is thinking the same thing. Was that, was today at work, like, do I want this again? And so this quiet quitting movement on the heels of a pandemic, which I think crystallized how finite our time really is on this earth, how little time we really have, is the result of people going, yeah, no, I think I'm good. I, I think I'm I think I'm gonna look for something else. Yeah. 
that was actually a gift i think that the pandemic gave us was was how clear can we be about our personal values like oh my god do i want to sit in a room and stare at the same four walls for two more years um and do work that may or may not be meaningful and if it's below meaningful why would i want to do that to myself Right. So I think it gave us, it's like, here's your values. Yeah. Um, and your values are based in where you put your time, where you put your money. Um, money you can make more of, time you can't, as you pointed out. So, well, and that became, that became crystal clear to me in 2015. And, and sort of the way that I got here, I had this career as a professional musician, you know, I got to play at piano bars all over the world, from Vegas to Paris, from Manhattan to the Middle East. I got to entertain audiences all over the world. Amazing. But like most musicians that aren't Rihanna, I also had a day job. And that day job was in sales. And I used my voice to communicate the value of what my company did to other prospects, right? So I had this day job that paid the bills um, and this night job that fulfilled me. But during a performance in in 2015, I suddenly and completely lost the ability to sing. My voice was gone. And it didn't return. A couple weeks went by before I thought, oh, this is serious. I should go see a doctor. I mean, I couldn't sing a lick. I could barely speak. And the first doctor looked at my voice, the ear, nose, and throat specialist, and couldn't figure out what was wrong. Second doctor still couldn't figure it out. Finally, I got recommended a doctor, happens to be here in Philly, who's one of the the best in the world. He's invented most of the surgical procedures done on the voice. And and when professional musicians need vocal care, they go to this guy. And his team did a full day and a half workup on me. I mean, they poked and prodded and inspected and tested everything you can imagine that's even tangentially related to, to how your voice works. And at the end of this day and a half, they brought me in. It was time to meet with the big guy, Dr. Sadaloff. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in this exam room in a very uncomfortable chair. And he walks in and this procession of doctors and uh, interns and, and you know whatever they call the students that come in, you know, they're all, I'm like, good God, how many people are going to fit in this room? And so I'm waiting for the diagnosis. And he he looks me in the eye and he says, Greg, I'm amazed that you've been performing given the condition of your vocal cords, because I've been doing this for a really long time. And I've never seen a pair of vocal cords as badly damaged as yours. Wow. And I'm going to be honest with you. It's going to take a tremendous amount of work, lifestyle changes, and surgery for us to be able to restore your speaking voice. And I said, well, wait a minute, surgery, like, look, I've got a sales job that I, I need to be able to do because that's how I'm, I'm paying my income. And I would love to get back to singing, you know, help me understand what all this means. And he, he paused and he said, I don't think you understand the severity of the situation you're in right now. If you had waited another few weeks to come in to see me, I don't believe there's anything I could have done to save your voice. And you would have, you would have lost the complete use of your voice permanently, your vocal cords would have become permanently paralyzed. There's not a surgery or a transplant or anything that can be done once you reach that point. So the fact that you're here right now is incredible, but what we need to do is talk about 
what we're going to do to save your speaking voice. And it was in that moment that I realized he hadn't said a damn thing about singing. And so I asked him, I said, all right, so let's say we do all this, you know, can I get back to singing at the piano bar? He said, I don't think you'll ever be able to sing professionally again. Your voice certainly will never sound like you're used to. But I do believe that if you go into surgery and you work with me and you make these changes, we can restore your speaking voice and we'll see what happens next. For me, that experience was like I think the world got with COVID. I just had it a couple years earlier. That crystallized how short life really is. And much like rank is a tool, my voice was a tool. My voice was an opportunity that I was given. And I had not been using it to the fullest of its ability. I had not been using it to serve the world around me. I was worried about how it could make me look. Mm. So I did a job that I really didn't care much about selling stuff during the day. And yes, I performed at piano bars at night and I had a blast doing it. But like, let's be honest, I wasn't doing as much as I was capable of doing with my voice. I wasn't going out and auditioning for their shows. I wasn't really even practicing or taking good vocal care of my voice as much as I should have. So I was abusing this opportunity that I had. And in many ways, that's why I'm so passionate about working with business, because I think organizations are abusing and missing an opportunity that's right in front of us to create real and meaningful change that betters the world around us, the communities we live in, and the people that we employ. Yeah, a couple people are making a hell of a lot of money right now with the way things are, but we could all be doing so much more. Business is such an amazing tool to create change. If we simply asked, what can we do to make this experience better for everybody else around me? And so that, I think, is not only the the, the power of the tip jar culture, but why I am so passionate about getting it out to as many people. It's why I'm writing a damn book, taking all this time to do it so that more people can experience it. Because when they do, I think my personal mission, taking, I call it taking the irk out of work, making work suck less for the people that go to it every day uh, can start to be accomplished. I love Everything about that. That's awesome. It was a, <laughs> it's an amazing story. Um, it's uh, an amazing segue back to what it is you do, your mission, your purpose, and the work you're doing and the and the book coming out. So I think that's 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 tremendous. Um as a side note, do you know Roger Love? Uh is he a, one of the voice guys, like a vocal coach or something? He's I know the like name. Like the yeah. number one vocal coach, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I had the privilege of working with him. And so as you were talking about this, it's like, oh my gosh, right? Mm-hmm. That's, um, it's amazing. Did your voice change much after surgery? So funny enough, it's a lot clearer. A um, little bit raspy today. I've had a heck of a, heck of a long week, but <clears throat> I used to sound like Joe Cocker if he ate a bag of rocks. Oh, and for folks nice. that are too old to get that or too young to get that reference, maybe think about the way Kevin Costner sounds in Yellowstone, just gravelly as all get out, really raspy. Um, and it wasn't just one surgery. I ultimately went on to have 15 vocal cord surgeries over the better part of a decade. So I spent months in silence, thousands of hours in in uh, vocal rehab. And I still, I work with a voice team to this day. I have a vocal coach and I have a 
vocal, a speech pathologist that I work with. So it's kind of an ongoing thing now, but that you call it post-traumatic growth, call it, uh, you know, divine intervention that really crystallized the opportunity. And I hope that the pandemic, the quiet quitting movement, you know, what we're going through now crystallizes the opportunity that's in front of the leaders uh, today, which is to make a real difference. That's and, and and you're helping me do that by bringing me on the podcast, Wayne. So well, thank I'm, you for I'm this glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. I mean the the message is so important. The uh, the the process is important. Your ability to uh, speak. Hopefully, you're. Are, do you do piano bar stuff at this point too? Still? So I don't. I don't perform at piano bars, but in my keynotes, very often the meeting planner will you know make it possible for us to have a piano there. Uh, and so we incorporate the piano and these elements of the piano bar, uh, I actually bring to life in front of the audience. So I don't just tell them about the power of a tip jar or the power of a request slip or the power of the spiel and opting in. We we do it right in front of them. And so it's a high energy, super fun and engaging keynote experience. Uh, I'd love to see one of your, uh, one of your keynotes. I think, I mean, it sounds super fun and engaging and, uh, uh, educational as well. So, well, you know what, if, if you go to my website, gregoryoffner.com, uh, what we do is bring at least one videographer to each uh, event. And so we do a little recap video of what it's like. Um, so you can get a taste for it there. If anybody listening wants to reach out to me or learn more about the book, that's the place to go. Uh, or if you want to book me for a keynote, that's the place to go. That's Awesome. And you've answered the question that was uh, unasked at that point. And, and there it is, right? So <laughs> how do people find you? GregoryOffner.com, G-R-E-G-O-R-Y-O-F-F-N-E-R, GregoryOffner.com for seeing what he's up to, looking at his book, upcoming book and or to book him for speaking. Uh, Greg, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you being on this program. Yeah, it's um, been a privilege. Thanks for having me. This is, uh, I mean, it really is about, right, cutting through to what matters most. So, again, thanks. This is One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most. My guest today, Gregory Offner at GregoryOffner.com. I'm Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the Exponential Success Coach and Founder and President of Dynamic Leader, Inc., I appreciate you being here. Thank you. And we'll see you here next time. Thank you for listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the breakthrough success coach and your powerful presence mentor.